Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Uh, John, Nick, and Beth, welcome. It's good to see everybody. Likewise. How are you guys doing today? Great to be here. I, I'm good, thank you. So I'm not actually going to be hosting this. Beth is going to be hosting this, which is fun. But before I hand the mic over to Beth, I'm just going to give a little introduction for everybody who may not be familiar. So Beth's going to be the least familiar to the channel. Uh, so Beth's actually my wife, um, but in addition to being my wife, uh, she's a master's in anthropology who did her thesis on parkour as a form of adult play. She currently does user experience research for Google, but has maintained a real interest in cognition and um, particularly play, the role of play, how we design spaces for play, and how spaces can kind of afford play. So she's been listening to my conversations with John and Nick and thought uh, she would love to be able to jump into the conversation and ask some questions as well. So we thought that'd be a lot of fun. So that is Beth and her background. Beth, do you want to say anything else about yourself? No, that was great. Thank you for the introduction. Yeah, great. So then in addition to uh, Beth, we have John Verveke and Nick Winkleman. John is uh, the director of... Um, Cognitive Science at the University of Toronto. He's been a huge influence of mine in understanding everything around the meaning crisis, as well as a deeper understanding of cognition and how we um, how we orient in the world. So uh, John's been on our channel many times and is just a huge influence. And thank you very much for being here, John. Always a pleasure, Rafe. Always a pleasure. Yeah. And Nick is the director of science and performance at Irish Rugby. He's also someone who's active in the scientific community. Uh, Nick, do you have a PhD as well? I think so. But I think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the papers. It's one of the papers sitting on my desk. I think they sent me one of those. Uh, yes. <laughs> so Nick, and you've done your research on uh, on on analogy, right? And the role of analogy in uh, in in motor control and cueing. Yeah, the, the, the influence of talking on people's ability to learn movement. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, Nick is the author of a, a wonderful book called uh, The Language of Coaching. And that's been an, an amazing, amazing resource for me in refining my language and how do I communicate with students. Um, and then Nick and John have become friends through, uh, through our podcast, which is really amazing. And so they've had an ongoing conversation about the intersection of their working worlds as well. So that's what brings us all here today. And Beth, why don't you take it away? 
Thank you. Yeah, no, that was a fantastic introduction. And I'm really excited to be here today. Because um, yeah, as Rafe said, I've been sort of following along, uh, listening in and um, over what the course of a year or two, I suppose, um, have definitely been, I don't know, uh, some questions have been percolating. So I'm really excited to, to dig into those with all of you today. I think um, where I want to get started is sort of this idea of the embodiment of knowledge through play. So this is something that has obviously been discussed um, via uh, lots of different people with um, Plato and Piaget and this idea of how we use physical play and physical interaction and engagement to embody this learning. And I think that that's one thing that has really fascinated me is the fact that um, you guys have all sort of come into this idea of we still need this um, the, the type of learning that is accessible through play is still incredibly important for adults. I think there's often been sort of this, in my own research, this stereotype of like, oh, well, once you're a grown up, you don't really need play. You don't need to build a scaffolding one. In fact, listening to um, all of you talk about how you are uh, teaching and coaching and things like that, how it really is a matter, uh, you're still leveraging this, this ability to kind of scaffold onto something. Um, and so I was curious to kind of understand um, this, scaffolding both from like knowledge onto the individual, but then using physical space. So as Rafe mentioned, this is something that I've really uh, focused on a lot in my own research is this idea of what does the physical space, how does it inform our learning? Um, you know, you can go into a gym and, you know, lift weights and that sort of thing, but then um, going out into a different environment, whether it's the, the rugby field or a, uh, a, a open like natural space or things like that, they are informing you in different ways. And so I'm curious kind of how in all of your work, you have found that um, environment sort of change how we're taking in knowledge. Um, and I'm happy to let whoever feels inspired to go first, uh, kind of kick it off. I vote for John. <laughs> <laughs> I take it away, John. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so um, for me, sort of three ideas uh, come together in play, uh, the imaginal, uh, uh, transformation, and uh, the idea of exaptation. And so I'll talk briefly about each and how, for me, play, especially what I call serious play, is uh, a powerful way of co-activating in a coordinating fashion these, these three things. Okay, so the imaginal transformation and acceptation. So the imaginal is a notion that comes from Corbin, although you can see it in a lot of Jungian work. Uh, uh, um, so the work of Jeffrey Raff, R-A-F-F and others. Um, and the distinctions between the imaginary and the imaginal the imaginary is when you picture or hear something in your mind, like you can imagine a sailboat or imagine the first five notes of Beethoven's fifth or something like that. And of course, that's an amazing ability. It allows us to run simulations, etc. There's a second sense of imagination, though, that has to do with what we typically call pretend, especially when we talk about pretend play. And notice how nicely those two are found together in our associational network. Um, so if you think of a child who picks up a stick and ties a blanket around their neck and I'm Zorro. So they're not picturing something in their head. They might, but they don't need to be. Instead, what they're doing is enacting. They're taking on 
a particular identity. They're configuring this self-machinery, their agency in a particular way, and they're, sal they're salience landscaping, and they're, they're interacting with these objects and through these objects in a way it picks up on a, sort of an enacted analogy, the way a stick is like a sword and a blanket is like a cape. And the thing about the imaginal is it allows you to trigger what I call perspectival and participatory learning. And these are very important for developing, um, uh, for development, for, cog for cognitive development, uh, but just general existential development. Now, the thing about the imaginal, one thing that I'm concentrating on right now is what I call the imaginal augmentation of reality. Um, and so uh, the analogy I use right now is a heads up display in, uh, in the windshield of a fighter pilot. So the fighter pilot has a lot of information projected onto the windscreen, the windshield, right? So that they don't have to look down at their instruments, they can look through. Um, and what that allows them to do is to pick up on patterns in the environment. So Dan Chappie and I are publishing a series of papers where the scientists on earth take flat black and white photographs and then draw on them. They draw on them and color on them and so that they can trigger the experience of actually feeling as if they are on Mars. They go from looking at these two dimensionals to looking through them and getting a sense of being the rover on Mars. That's the imaginal augmentation of reality and uh, a place where I think that is particularly pertinent at, is that in religious contexts, we do this imaginal augmentation in order to put people in uh, a form of serious play, which is ritual in order to afford transformation. So that's a brief thing about uh, the imaginal. So play engages imaginal and especially the imaginal augmentation reality. So you can pick up on depths of the world and depths of the psyche and more properly coordinate their mutual or, uh, realization together. So the next big aspect for me is based on transformation is based on the work of uh, uh, Laurie, L.A. Paul, Laurie Paul, I know Laurie, and Agnes Callard. And the basic idea is, you. and I've got this argument in, 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 uh, extensively in many places, so I won't do it. I'll just gesture towards it. The basic idea is you can't infer your way through transformative experience. Uh, the, the main reasons are you're perspectively and participatorily ignorant. So for example, uh, choosing to have a child, you don't know what it's going to be like to be a child. Being a parent doesn't properly prepare you for knowing what it's like, the perspectival knowing of being a child. And you don't know how your identity is going to change. You're going to become a different person with a different set of values. And so you can't use your current set of values to judge what that person is going to uh, want or be or need. Um, and so the trouble is many of these decisions like having a child or marrying somebody are very hard to get out of. They're almost irreversible. And so you can't deliberate your way through them. You can't infer your way through them. But you, if you just leap right, in some sort of Kierkegaardian fashion, uh, that could be extremely dangerous. So what people do is they do serious play. Um, they get into this liminal space that gives them a taste of the perspectival and the participatory without committing. So I use the example, and it's funny, since I've been using this example, I've been getting comments from people saying, yeah, yeah, I see this. People are deciding whether or not to have a child so they get a dog, and people have been doing that, 
right? And then they take pictures with the dog and they treat it like a, and you get, and there's enough responsibility there and there's enough responsiveness. You get a sense of what it, be, what it would be like to be in relationship with a child and also what you, how you're going to change, but it doesn't have the same moral and causal consequences. So serious play is a way in which human beings regularly go through transformative change, which is core to qualitative development. The next is acceptation. The idea is, and this is a, a I, I think ecstasis acceptation should be the fifth E added to the four E's of cognitive science, by the way. Um, and this is the idea that cognition develops and undergoes transformation by reusing circuits that are originally crafted by the brain for one function and then get co-opted uh, for another function. Um, so I use a biological example to make clear what exaptation is. My tongue. Many organisms have tongues, but humans have exapted the tongue in order to use it for speech. And I use areas of the brain for moving my hands around, and I exapt them for pantomime, which is communication. I turn action into communication, and then I do that with myself to help myself think, and that's called gesturing. Um, and so... One of the things that play does for us is it allows us to exact. Now, a very important form of exaptation, and this goes to the work of Barbara Tversky and many other people, but she's written a, a recent book on it, is that the, the complex set of skills, very complex, dynamic, self-organizing, recursive, we use in physical navigation are exapted up into navigation within conceptual space and even existential conceptual space, sense of self, right? That's why we talk about boundary. Think about that weirdness of this language, the boundaries around myself. What the heck does that actually mean? But we treat it as natural, right? And so play brings together for me in a coordinated and integrated and mutually supporting fact, fashion, these, th these three factors uh, that, I've, uh, uh, that I've laid out, the imaginal, uh, trans genuine transformation, and acceptation. And I hope you can see how they're all actually mutually supported and integrating together. So I think play, if you take one other important thesis, and then I'll, I'll be quiet. And here's the, the thesis. The thesis is that cognition is inherently dynamical, self-organizing, which means it functions by developing. And in developing, it's functioning. You can't separate developmental development and function. And since play is so central, to development is also central to the functioning of cognition. So that would be my initial argument I would make. That was awesome. Thank you. Um, yeah, I definitely, yeah, Rafe and Nick, I definitely want you to jump in. There were just a couple of things, like little nuggets that I want to plant as, as we continue on in this conversation. Um, I think the, uh, the, the point about acceptation is, is spot on with some of the work that I've done as well with, you know, it's that scaffolding of, of taking one thing and building onto another thing and play is really good at that. In fact, I almost want the, a little, I don't know, antenna picked See, here I am gesturing. Little antenna popped up for me um, with the idea of ritual versus play. Play absolutely has ritual in it. And yet there's also creativity. And so I'm, I'm curious to, as we move through in this conversation, I want to push on that idea a little bit of sort of how that, that liminal, like you just said, that liminal space of ritual versus creativity. Um, and then you, you brought up the digital versus physical. And again, that's something that I want to get into, but first I want to just dig more into this physical space. So, okay, take it away, Rafe and Nick. <laughs> I just had to note that the reason that I had to run away from the screen for a second is because our dog, um, 
was let off lead by our children while they were playing. And so while you were talking about play, uh, my I sent my son out to retrieve the dog and they're running across the field. Um, and just, it was just apropos, um, though, slightly distracting. Uh, so I'll let Nick, Nick take it away. Just a funny moment. Um, from my, from my perspective, first of all, Beth, Rafe, John, it, it is always a pleasure. Beth, it's, it's nice to finally meet you. So thanks for the opportunity to, to be here today. I, I have to say, you, John and, and Rafe, you both know this. You, you two have fundamentally transformed the path that, that I've been on since COVID kicked off. And, and I'll just continue to tell you how grateful I am to share this space with both of you and, and, and now yourself, Beth. So from my perspective, John certainly nailed it in terms of the, the core tenets of anything I'd like to share. But, but in the spirit of analogy and, and, and saying the same thing in a different way, I'll, I'll just add a layer of, of texture here. The first thing that came to mind, notably, Beth, you talked about Piaget, and, and I'm certainly at, at a very practical level, a big fan of how he looks at development. And with two young kids, I've got to watch a lot of this firsthand as I've been studying motor learning, as I've been coaching, as I've been writing. So it's been an amazing crucible for a lot of this stuff, theoretical and practical, to come together. But in the spirit of the word play, I find it interesting that when kids go to school, it's not tell and show, it's show and tell. And I think therein lies, in a very simple statement, some of the richness of what we're talking about. In that uh, one of my favorite Zen sayings is the, the sound of rain needs no explanation. And with that, what all this gets back to in, in showing a non-explanation is that we come into this world first and foremost with our capacity to, to sense to move, to, to act, but not necessarily to the capacity of talking about what we sense or talking about our movement. So, you know, in, in Zen philosophy, they talk about the, the, the original mind or the Buddha mind or the beginning mind. And they always reference children because unavoidably they, they are fully embedded within this experience. And so as I watched my own children development, it didn't betray anything that, that I read with it within Piaget and even in my own thoughts. And that early on, we talk about embody, but I also like the word absorb. As I watch my children play, I see them absorbing the world around them, acting at, at a level that if I was to ask them to explain what they're doing, they might not be able to put it into words, even once they're, they're verbal. So my son can act like a dog or a doctor, mom or dad, and act as if they are those characters. And it's almost allowing the full richness of their sensory experience to sample the world around them and to start to understand it at an experiential level, at a participatory level, as John talks about. Only later on, once they gain words and language, in a manner that is still very crude and never can fully replace the experience itself, they can start to talk about it. They, instead of crying, they can say, mom, dad, whoever, I'd like the apple, I'd like the banana. And this is why in a lot of my own work, I try to remind people how much of language is built out of our, our sensory motor experience. And it's through that sensory motor experience that we come to understand and know the world around us. And so this is the danger then 
as I'm sure will be talked about, of trivializing play. And that as people start to, to age, not necessarily chronologically, but as they move through their life, we're seeing more and more industries of all varieties respecting and incentivizing everything above the neck. And it's unavoidable then that we operate in kind of this space of language and concepts, but we forget the home on which those language and concepts are built. And that's on a physical sensory motor state whose richness comes alive when we move, when we play. Now, now I still am in absolute awe of John's etymological capacities to look back at root words, but I think I'm on solid ground in saying play Play was not simply the province of children in its original conception. Very much so, it probably had more to do with the way we we enact the world around us, engage the world around us. And I just recently, for a presentation, got to study quite a bit of of the Hadza hunter-gatherer community in northern Tanzania. And if you look at them as a representation of ancient societies, we've talked about shaman as a group, John and Rafe. Dance is one of the old play. Dance is one of the only things they do that has no direct, I use the word direct precisely here, survival consequence in that it does not relate to them hunting or gathering to food to off balance the energy for the hunting and the gathering. Yet they do it. And we see this in ancient societies all the way back. And it's not just for the children. It is not just for the children. And if we look at many of the movements engaged in in these dances, they are very animalistic. And likely you could map them to the type of animals or environments these individuals would find themselves in. And so I think in summary, we come into this world playing as a vehicle to absorb and embody it. But we continue to do that throughout life. And we have to remember that. And and we, we risk losing the engine on which this beautiful brain is built when play starts to dissolve in modern society. That was great. No, I think that's a really, really important point, how much we've focused on the, the mental versus the, the physical. And that's definitely something I, I admire about all of your work is, is you really are trying to get back into the body and get back in the spirit. And I think um, that's also a really great point I wrote down about the sort of the, the enactment. And I think that reminds me of, um, I don't know if you guys have heard of Irving Goffman. He's actually a Canadian sociologist, um, go Beavers. Where <laughs> from the, and he talked a lot about this idea of the, the framing or staging of a thing like that and using play and dance and, sham, and shamanistic practices to break that frame as well. And so I found that that was interesting how this is um, something that comes up a lot. Um, so just, yeah, wanted to kind of echo what, what you were saying, Nick. Um, Rafe, what, what, uh, what's coming up for you? Um, yeah, I love what John said. I think we could dig really deeply into the imaginal and exaptation and transformation. And, and, and as Nick was saying, um, how... I think within play um, and within a lot of the things that, you know, embodiment and uh, the physical practices that we've been talking about on this channel, we have this realization that the, that we're narrowing what the self is in our culture in ways that are very misleading and that, and that, you know, it, it re- result in reciprocal narrowing as John would say, right? And we can see it symbolically represented right now, right? All of us are represented to the audience as heads, 
we're floating heads in space, right? Um, I was just thinking how interesting it would be if if the norm for Zoom was to to always have like a full body shot of everybody, um, and then then you could see someone's gestures, but like you know you don't gesture with your hands very much in a Zoom meeting because you because you know you have to like move them out of their normal purview and then they get in the way and but actually we we miss a lot of what of how someone would normally communicate when we don't have access to their gestures. And I was reminded as you were talking, Nick, about um, Joseph Henrik's thesis in The Secret of Our Success that gesture precedes language. Um, so it, I think that that's more and more sort of scientifically uh, solid ground now that we became cultural animals and we became symbolic animals through physical representation through the breast of the body and that the, the ability to vocalize was sort of mm, uh, expanded as a primary communicative tool relatively late. In fact, I believe I just ran into something and I didn't get a chance to dig deeply into this. Um, but if I, I can't, I'm, try, I'm trying to remember who was saying this, but it was uh, something along the lines of actually the, the anatomy that is associated with the ability to sing appears to predate our ability to speak even. And so you're talking about dance and dance is often associated with music and, and song. And so these, these uh, ritualized and, and um, embodied forms of communication in many ways precede this articulation that we have. Um, and we, we have fallen in love with, with the spoken word and then the written word um, as as ways of representing information. And uh, it represents, it, it, it's extraordinarily efficient in capturing specific types of information. Um, but there's a lot that that inherently is, is sifted out as we source more of our information from that, uh, that kind of, um, of language. So those are some of the thoughts that came up for me. And mm, there was another one but it's left me. So I think I'll, I'll stop there and let you uh, direct the next uh, question, Beth. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. And anybody feel free to jump in. If you, if you have something like, Oh, I meant to add this or that or the other thing, please feel free to jump in. Um, I really want this to be an organic conversation as much as possible. I think um, I, that was, that was awesome to hear the different. Oh yes, John do it. Yeah, I, I wanted to add one more point to that, which um, about play um, one of the thing, I mean, so you've got Siegler's work saying that what kids do in play is they don't, they don't stick with the initial strategy. They introduce variation and then they select. So they actually sort of enact something analogous to evolution in play in order to go it forward. And so we, we need to think about that too. Um, I think there's deep connections between play and sort of refining our capacities for relevance realization. And then the other thing is like what, what Rafe and Nick was both pointing to, to gesture, uh, especially pantomime. Uh, R. Beeb's notion that pantomime bridged between, uh, you know, action and communication. Because in pantomime, you take, an, you take something like, you know, drinking. I take an action and then I use it for communicating. Now, the thing about this is I just, I just wanted to flag this, just to put it out there as another dimension. This goes very deep. So I'm on the theme of learning here. One of the things that's emerged out of, you know, deep learning and neural networks 
um, and it's even it's finding its way into dream, why we dream and other things is the idea that, and you can see this, of course, in pantomime explicitly, that, that we use, and this is one of the primary acceptations, we use the areas of the brain for generating behavior in order to recognize it, right? So I use, so, and this was at one time the mirror neuron, and that's now a controversial idea, whether or not they're specialized neurons, but this general idea that the, the area of the brain that I use for picking up a cup are the areas of the brain I recognize, I used to recognize somebody picking up a cup, right? That I'm, to, so that, and play is exactly that kind of thing. I, I'm generating so I can better recognize. I'm generating so I can better recognize. I'm generating so I can better recognize. So if I play Zorro, if I generate Zorro, I'm gonna be much better at recognizing Zorro-like people, especially within myself. All right. So I just wanted to put that out there because that was one other dimension I wanted to, like the, like the, the, the idea that play is this kind of enacted evolution that allows us to do this primary acceptation of generate to recognize and recognize to generate. And if you let me talk too much, I'll start talking about Plato and I'll, I'll be quiet right now. Sorry, Beth. I'd love to just jump in here with, with this idea that something that was really striking that you said there was, was how we, when you said that we, we generate to recognize, right? Well, what kinds of things do children inherently generate? One of the things that I wanted to flag earlier was this idea that play is actually confusing to play researchers. Right? It's, it's hard to get play researchers to nail down what play is, but it's not at all confusing to children, right? And, and it's tens and, and, and adults, I think, have a very poor model of what play actually is in children. We tend to think that it's always fun. It's not always fun. We tend to think that it's, you know, um, always sort of fantasy oriented. And that's not true either, though there's a lot of narrative play. Um, so I think we, we don't have a good map of it, but children are, are, are driven by it. And one thing that was interesting that you said is, so as you said, we, we, we generate to recognize, I think one, maybe this is a cultural thing, but what I see is small children are very fascinated by the idea of good guys and bad guys. And so within their play, they're trying to generate what, what occurred to me is that within their play, they're right away trying to archetype out a moral dimension to their behavior. And particularly like, it's interesting with my son because he was obsessed with being the bad guy for a really long time. And he's a very sweet natured child, right? So it's a real surprise that like he, he, he has to be Darth Vader whenever he's playing, when he's like snuggly and nice and very, um, you know, not <laughs> very rarely mischievous or malicious. And so I just was, I was curious to, to, to expand on that theme of how, of, of how children are, are mapping out the behaviors that, so that they can actually understand the morality of existing as a social human being. So I'd love to, to leave that question for other people to jump in on. Well, before John jumps in, just to, to highlight an accent, a, a point here, um, back to what John said in terms of you know, generating to understand and kind of the reciprocation of that. If we look at, at infants within hours of coming into this world, their ability to mirror their parents' you know facial features and, and actually smile before obviously they have any social cue or understanding as to what that possibly could even mean that they can act as if they understand and they smile and we smile and that that mirroring whether or not there are mirror neurons but that mirroring 
that comes in its very crude initial form through gesture and almost with children, sporadic body movement as if they're randomly trying to sample as much information as possible around their world. Everything you use the word Beth earlier seems to scaffold up from that. And, and I like the word absorb. It, it allows us through our actions to absorb the world around us, to sample it. And Rafe, as you said, allow us to sample the bad guy or the good guy to understand that lived experience, not to make a testament that that's who we want to be, but rather to understand them in search of who we want to be in the future, even though we can't necessarily put it into words. And the, and the one thing I will say around the play research, and, and I'd love to offer this up to, to anyone, is in, in spending a lot more time in Eastern philosophy over the, over the last six months and how much emphasis, notably in Zen Buddhism, in the limitations of the spoken word and how there's an, an explicit statement that words can never come close to describing this experience of emptiness and oneness that we search, I wonder with certain activities, especially one as complex and as experientially based as play, can words ever come close to explaining what's actually going on there in a meaningful, accurate way? Um, I, I hope we can dig into that, Nick, because... Uh... A thing, a, a thing that uh, has come out for me uh, out of the Eastern literature, but I'm also finding it in the Western Neoplatonic tradition. It, but the, the, the Zen statement goes like this. Enlightenment is never found by seeking, but only those who seek it find it. Um, which a typical Zen uh, self-contradicting uh, thing. And that seems to me to be designed to put you into the play space, exactly that liminal space, uh, the tension of opposites. I wanted to make one thing clear about what I said before, just so, because I think Ray brought up a, 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 an idea about how there, I think this is right to say, there's a kind of articulation in play that pre, predates and also undergirds the kind of articulation that we find in speech. We're articulating a moral landscape way before we can articulate it with conceptual language. But I wanna bring out that like when the children are doing, like if you, when they're doing the variation, it's not just differentiation, right? So the, the point, like when, if you look at Hinton's wake-sleep algorithm, when the neural network generates the variation, what it's doing is, right, it generates, and when I say it recognizes, it's sifting through, and what it's doing is getting a more and more nuanced ability to track something in the world. So initially, it can only recognize this as a letter A, but eventually it can recognize this and this, right? And so play allows, right, a, a kind of, sort of co-articulation, uh, we, we start to get, the, the world becomes more articulated as we become more articulated to the world in a coordinated fashion in play. And I was, I was wondering if that might be a helpful way to think. Maybe it's not, but I've been also working on this idea of, you know, a pre-linguistic a pre sense of articulation of intelligibility that is presupposed by the articulation that is necessary in language. And I note that people talk about articulated movement in these, in these areas on a regular basis. And so I, that, that, I just wanted to throw that out and, uh, as another dimension. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Nick and Rafe, do either of you want to respond? Otherwise I can jump in with my own two cents. <laughs> um, I, do, I do, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. 
I think the idea of play as an engine of intelligibility is a really fruitful idea. Like there's, you know, one of the defining characteristics of play is that it's not um, associated with a direct survival benefit. But a lot of times when we look at it, there's, there's, there, there is a benefit, right? It's just not clear at the first look. So some of the research that, that Beth did um, when she was looking at, at uh, parkour was basically about how primates engage in essentially the same type of repetitive route finding, jumping, climbing behavior that parkour athletes do. And I don't know if this was speculation from the researchers or it's something that I kind of generated myself, but the idea that I came up with was that if you're a macaque and you're in your environment, I believe this research was done on macaques, um, and you you repeatedly run and jump and climb, right? So you're you're running and jumping and climbing, and currently there's there's no food that you're going to get, and there's nothing that you're running away from, then that that behavior doesn't look like it is um, it's relevant. But essentially, what you could imagine that that is happening, or what you you might speculate that is happening, is that that animal is mapping its environment and the affordances in that environment that will that could might be relevant to survival right so if you know every if you know the weight bearing capacity of all the branches in your environment then you can rapidly get onto a branch that a predator might be too heavy to get onto right if you know that you can jump certain gaps then those gaps become relevant one thing that's that's come up for me in, in researching hunter foragers is when Westerners go or you know anthropologists go and and follow hunter foragers, they cannot keep up with them in the woods, and it, it's like magic the way that they move through the woods. But it's, but having done parkour for years, I realize it's not magic; it's familiarity, right? It's knowing where what bears your weight, knowing how much weight you can put down, knowing how to place your foot in a like if you're running across mossy rocks then you have to place your foot very neutrally under your center of mass. If you're running down a, a, a rubberized track with spikes on, then you can afford to take a much more aggressive step. And someone who's not familiar with the different affordances of an environment is going to automatically be much less uh, fluent in moving, movement through that environment. So play acts to increase essentially the that locomotor play acts to improve the intelligibility of the of the environment through which that animal moves such they can rapidly um, escape things that are aversive and move towards things that are appetitive over time. So it, it's highly functionally relevant over a longer period of time. And and one way to, to think about that is exactly what you're saying is, is this idea that essentially it's a, it's like a relevance realization thing it's a it's a it's a it's a mapping to uh to achieve an optimal grip in relationship to the environment so that's what i wanted to 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 gesture towards there i mean rafe in that way you could have easily replaced the word play with practice and just as sometimes play is overly connected with something that's fun and childish people equally can make the mistake of seeking, seeing practice as something that is overly structured, not meant to be fun and forced to. And I actually think in, in many ways, having a practice to one is engaging in play for another. So I think we can take those terms and maybe help for, for a modern vernacular, 
find a space that in a Venn diagram way gets them to interact. Because really when I'm hearing our discussion of play, it seems to be useful exploration that serves a purpose, either survival and or something that makes me feel better as an individual, which still ultimately will support thriving and the pursuit of the things that help me survive. So in, indirect as it might be, it still has a, a direct consequence on survival long-term. So maybe some terminology expansion for the modern tongue could be helpful here. Um, Nick, one thing that you brought up a really good point when you were talking with, um, I think it was John in a previous conversation, you talked about the motivation and how important motivation is. And I think that's also a thing that comes up in play that people forget about. You are motivated to try out these, these movements. You're motivated to try being, you know, Zorro, you're motivated. So I think that, and, and you talked about that with keeping the motivation, um, alive in your, in, in the people that you're working with. So I feel like, yeah, to, to your point, I think that's a really important distinction that is often um, overlooked in practice and play. And, and I've, been, I've been thinking, Rafe, of you in particular lately for a presentation I just finished, our, our movement industry that is more in common speech connected to fitness and exercise industry has defined a way, and I, and I use that term, they have defined a way all of this movement and play that is so good for us physically, but notably mentally and socially, especially in the way that, that you're talking about it and sharing it as a practice and John in your own practices as well. And, and I think a big part of this conversation we're having on movement and meaning as, as a global kind of space of movement professionals need to recognize that we inadvertently defined away so much of the natural goodness of the movement space by hyper-defining exercise to reps and sets. And I think that's something this conversation needs to continue to break through. Yeah, I'll just say, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I love that. And uh, maybe, maybe I'd love to hear from John. Uh, I think what Nick said was, is really important. Um, it's, it's funny that there is so much talk within sort of the athletic about world about flow because of the way it affords optimal performance while disconnecting flow from play um, uh, in a profound way. Um, yeah, that, that I, I think I have been impressed by, it was a lacuna in my argument about the meaning crisis and the two of you um, have really brought it to the fore and I'm grateful for that. I'm not, I'm not complaining, which is the aspect of the truncation of the breadth and depth of movement and our appreciation in both senses of the word of appreciation of the role of movement in mind and meaning and how that has been a contributor to the meaning crisis. I, I, I think that's, I, I think that's a very important thesis. And I think Nick, Nick was touching on it right there, right. Uh, uh, about that. And, um, that one of the motivations for movement is making meaning in mind, um, and uh, and that we've and and, that, and that's deeply motivational to us. Deeply motivational. I mean, some of the research on meaning in life shows people will put up with almost any any hell if the, if they can find meaning in it. You know, Nietzsche is you know, give me a why and I can suffer anyhow, right? Um, and, and so I just wanted to say that. That, that connection that was just made, and you, you, you both made that connection. Um, I think that that's an important dimension of 
why we're in the meaning crisis right now that needs to, uh, as, as Nick said, has to, we have to keep bringing it forward. Where, like, if this is correct, this argument that we're building together, then we're not just talking about fitness and health. We're talking about, I mean, I'm going to sound sort of pretentious here to be provocative. We're talking about, you know, sustaining Western civilization. We're talking about, right, the meaning-making machinery that makes people suffer human existence, because there's a lot of suffering in human existence, no matter how affluent you are. And of course, people who are less affluent suffer in extra ways. I'm not denying that. But we are in, right, a painful situation. Um, and I think that dimension, uh, that depth dimension of the, the value of movement, uh, I just, I think, I just want to emphasize that. I think that's a, that's an, a, that's a centrally important point. At least that is one of the ways in which your work, both of you, has had a huge impact on how I frame uh, the meaning crisis, for example. I think a, a huge part of this is, you know, what Dan Lieberman, you know, who, who talks extensively around in his, in his recent book, exercised this, this exercise paradox. And that classically a phrase to describe movement in ancient societies is, you know, move when you have to and rest when you can. And that it would appear, again, referencing kind of the, the, the Hadza as one exemplar of this, you, you move your body from a hunting and a gathering perspective in a remarkably precise fashion to gain enough energy to have energy balance. And that these individuals seem to stay roughly at the same weight throughout their entire lifetime. And, and so this happens though at a necessity, at a survival. There, as far as one might be able to tell, no additional motivation required beyond that that is already embedded in our kind of Maslow hierarchy of needs and the survival mechanism driving it. It doesn't take extra effort to say, ooh, do I wanna to survive today? Whereas now, now we have to make that decision. We have nutritional abundance. There, there is no risk for the vast majority of the world of starvation. And so now movement in its, in its abundance has become a choice, one of many. And it's not winning. It's not winning. It's not being chosen. And so I think part of that issue is we have gotten so myopic in what it means to move. And that, as you say, John, we have defined a way the connection of, of mind-body in its meaningful embodied sense. We've defined away all the other diversity of ways of, of moving in its rich forms. We've defined away and forgotten the benefits of movement that's outside of a gym that doesn't look conventional by modern standards. And I think so much of the richness of the mind-body connection will come back naturally without any words required if we can broaden that perspective once again and say, there's always a pathway for everyone. And I think the route back is play because people won't move out of necessity anymore. It'll rarely be the way. And so now society needs to import fun. 
as the primary motivational means to get people moving, which means we need to diversify what people can access because fun is going to be very different to, 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 to an individual. And so what was necessity in the past driving movement far more, let's say, than play and fun, I think society now has to inverse that. And so it makes this conversation that much more important. That was awesome. Oh, oh, go ahead, Ray. I, I'd love to, to, to expand on that. There's just a, a series of thoughts that kind of occurred for me there. But um, this is the argument that I've been making since the beginning of Evolve Move Play is that, that the fitness industry has made a fundamental mistake, right? And that the necessity for exercise is a, is a necessity of a, of a sedentary population. And, and so then we, we know that we need to exercise and essentially we've been leveraging shame as our tool to get people to exercise and it's not working. Um, so we have this other lever, which is play, which we're actually handicapping from the very beginning by, by punishing children for engaging in it. And it's amazing how much we do that. And even our kids who you know, get more support for play than probably anybody else. Like if they try to go across the street and play in the park, like everyone's super concerned about them and, you know, they're wrestling at a party and everyone's, you can just see the adults starting to get, get tense because our culture just is super unfamiliar with play. But, um, so I think there's something really, really powerful. That's a, that's a tool. And I think within my journey, within Evolve Move Play, there's been this recognition, there's almost something that, that comes after that. And uh, I'm going to try to connect these thoughts and hopefully, you know, this will, will, will be useful and you guys can help me refine it. But I had this, this question of like, when, when did we need to practice? When did exercise start? You, you give the example of a hunter forager, a hunter forager, a child, a, a young hunter forager engages in play. And they play in ways that largely replicate the life skills that they will need as an adult. And at a certain point, their play ceases to be obviously play and becomes relevant behavior. They are no longer shooting at lizards with their bow and arrows. They're shooting at antelopes. And now they're contributing calories to their tribe. They don't cease enjoying it. And in many hunter-forger cultures, there's actually no distinguishing word between um, the word that's used for what a child does when they're playing and what an adult does when they're hunting. That's, you know, they're, they're viewed as a, there's a continuity to that. Even if you look at a farmer, right? A farmer becomes fit to farm by farming. But I had this realization the other day that, that as soon as there are professional classes of warriors, there is a necessity for exercise because battle and fighting is something that happens sufficiently infrequently that, and is also so dangerous that you couldn't get fit just doing it anyways. So the tradition of the martial arts goes back at least probably four or five, 6,000 years. I mean, we, you know, you can go back and find manuals uh, for like chair cheering, I think in, you know, among the Mesopotamians, right? So it's, it's been around all that time. And as soon as you had that, you had people who had a necessity to have some kind of training. So I think there's something interesting in the martial arts as a, as a window into the types of training that have been, that have worked for a very long time. And martial arts, especially at least in Asia, but I think this is true really all over the world, are associated with ritual and religion. They're associated with practice. So I've made this point before, but um, 
sumo, right, which is kind of the origin of the grappling arts in Japan, is specifically a Shinto practice that happened at Shinto temples. And sumo becomes koryu jujitsu, which becomes judo and jujitsu and, and all these things. Um, John is a practitioner of Taiji Shuan. Taiji Shuan is a specifically Taoist practice that was part of an ecology of Taoist practices along with other martial arts like Bagua Jing and, uh, and Ying Ji. Um, and my friend uh, Scott Park Phillips talks also about how all these things are actually very closely related to theater as well. So we're talking about play, and one of these really form foundational forms of play is actually theater, to play out something. And what was played out? What was played out was narratives about the gods. And so when you're when you're practicing the forms of Tajishuan or Bagua, traditionally you're actually embodying specific characters within your Taoist cosmological view which was associated with what's happening in the theater, as well as the practices that give meaning to life, that give religio, that sense of deep connection. So there's a sense for me that as we delve deeper into this conversation, as the movement is connected to the meaning, there's a realization that it is within, within meaning in life that we have the proper aim for a physical practice. And that, and I, I'm con increasingly convinced of this, and this is something that's really developed through my conversations with both of you guys, but in particular John for a long time, that we can't solve that problem that is trying to be solved through the conversation around meaning in life without finding a way to get it all the way down into the body. And that's where the physical practices have to happen. So I hope that was useful. Um, that was kind of a little bit of a thesis statement, but there was something about that idea that that it's in the martial arts where this starts, that the necessity of practice starts there, that I thought was, it was a new insight for me and I wanted to share that with you guys. Can I add on to that? And then I, I want Nick and John to go for sure. I think that something that popped up for me when Nick spoke and then again, when you spoke, Rafe, is something that fascinated me about parkour was the sense that they weren't goofing off, quote unquote, like the first trusters that you spoke with. And even people, when they go out and train, it is very serious. They are treating it almost as if it is a martial art. They are training to be useful. They are training to be. Um, and yet in our own modern lives, how often is it that you're actually going to need to, you know, jump over a wall and climb over, unless you're doing a military thing, unless you're doing a martial activity. And so for me, I was fascinated by the fact that First off, that, that 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 was sort of the, the mental model that they were using, and then second of all, that um, the people who I spoke with created almost like a physical safe space a, a, as a group. And so I was curious about that as well. Um, that layering on top of the fact that you have a group, kind of what Nick was talking about with creating a culture of movement and play, um, how how that all kind of fed into each other. So I just wanted to layer that on top of what Rafe said. <clears throat> Maybe I could say something in response to Beth's notion of layering, because uh, uh, it's, it's a problem that I'm wrestling with, I mean, theoretically, um, in this whole space that we're talking about. Um, and it goes towards if, because there's, there, there, the, I think what Beth's saying is the layering goes like, it goes, yeah, it goes down into the body, but it also goes up into the group, individual cog embodied cognition, embedded distributed cognition and play is relating those together. We've, we've, we prefer to play with others uh, and, and for good reason. 
um, playing alone is, is kind of sad. Um, so the question I have then uh, is, I, I've related this story, I think, uh, with you, Rafe. Um, I was doing the initial sort of three or four years I was doing Tai Chi Chuan. And I was doing it religiously in both senses of the word, you know, regular deep practice and getting into it like very deeply. Uh, and I was having all these amazing experiences, you know, the, the days where you're as cold as ice and the days where you're burning like lava and all that stuff that they talk about in the classics. And it's, it's amazing. And you're getting into the flow state. And I was sort of enamored of that. Um, but then I had my friends come up to me and I was in grad school and they said, what's going on with you? You've changed. And I was like shocked. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, you're much more balanced in your conversation and you're much more empathetic and you're much more flexible in your thinking. And I hadn't been looking for that. And, and for me, I now use that as a touchstone when I teach my students. And what I'm talking about is this, because right when we talk about the, the, the like, I'm trying to come up with a normative standard for play, which is of course audacious, but that's what philosophers and cognitive scientists always do. And one of the normative standards seems to be this issue of transfer, because I compare what happens in Tai Chi Chuan with some, not all, please hear that, but with some video games in which people get into the flow state within the video game, but it doesn't transfer and they suffer video game addiction precisely because it doesn't transfer. They get locked in, locked in and blocked in, right? So it doesn't mean everywhere you flow is good, right? And so one of the normative standards and it, it, it is, does it transfer? And does it transfer in two ways? Does it percolate through the layers of the psyche, down and up? And does it, does it permeate through your life? And this goes toward Nick's work, because a lot of what Nick, I'm sorry, Nick, I don't mean to be presumptuous. From my viewpoint, it looks like a lot of what you're trying to do is figure out how to afford, through analogy, the transfer of play, right? And, and, right? and, and so this this issue, what's called transfer-appropriate processing, right? It, 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 and you can look at it in cognition. What forms of cognitive play percolate and permeate? What forms isolate and block and lock you in? And so that question of the layering for me, Beth, leads in deep into this question of the normativity of play. And part of the problem with a lot of our play and notice what the word originally meant, entertainment. Entertainment meant to hold it in your mind, but not really commit, right? That's why I'm entertaining an idea. I'm just sort of, right? A lot of entertainment does, is not transfer appropriate. In fact, it's counter transfer appropriate. My favorite example is romantic comedies who, that train people in perspectival and participatory knowing and skills that directly train them against reality and therefore make them put tremendous pressure on their romantic relationships to deliver things that romantic relationships could never deliver. So that's a form of play, very pervasive, that doesn't transfer. And so I would like also to you know, bring up that a question that I think we need to start talking a little bit more about in this space um, especially if we want, right, if we want people to appreciate the depth of the relationship between movement, meaning, and mind, which is the normativity around this. What is good play and what's bad play? And I've suggested at least one dimension. I don't claim it's exhaustive or complete. 
that would be ridiculous. I'm giving it as an example of the kind of thing you might consider uh, when you are uh, reflecting on this. The reason why this question is important is we don't want the relationship between play and flourishing to be merely correlational. We want to be able to say, this is what leads to it. This is what leads away from it and how and why that happens. If, we're, if people are more generally going to take seriously what we're proposing. So that's an attempt on my part to be sort of provocative and, and, and poke things a little bit. John, do you, I have some things I want to say, but I want to, I want to pick up on your point. Do, do you think we should, so take, for example, sport, okay? The amount of arguments people get into in defining what is a sport, right? Down to people who call chess a sport, rugby's a sport, golf. parkour, golf. And then you'll have people that say the opposite. Just it, it's staying kind of with, with the word play to, to make sure that people are, are exporting the right meaning from it relevant to how we're trying to use it. How... How do you think about play? How do you think about defining play? How do we get it out of the realm of just a childish behavior you need to grow out of? Well, Nick, I think there's two projects and, I, uh, and I've tried to exemplify them a bit. Um, I'm sorry, I think there's at least two projects. There's probably more. One is a richer a descriptive explanatory framework saying, no, no, you, you're, you, you, you know, look what you're doing here. You're, the, you're, you're doing imaginal augmentation, you're affording transformation, you're acceptation, and you're fundamentally giving access to the meaning-making machinery that, 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 and all of these are necessary to human flourishment, the cultivation of wisdom and virtue. And then you lay that in. You have to have a deeper descriptive explanatory framework. But you also have to have a better, and, 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 and we've all, and you know, and we've all helped each other. We're starting to do that now. But I'm concerned that, right, it, you also have to do the same kind of developmental, theoretical development on the normative side, right? Especially if we want to say that, that movement is going to connect to meaning and wisdom and virtue, uh, like I think we should. I think that was one of your points that you made. Then we have to be able to tell people, like, well, here's a good here's a good ecology of practices and here's a bad ecology of practices. And what, and so those two are needed. Like we, we, we have to understand the phenomena well, and then we have to, you know, be able to say, well, this is what we want. This is how we can improve the phenomena or, or this is how we can degrade the phenomena. And, and, and this is why we would want to improve it. And this is why we don't want to degrade it. So for me, uh, to get play away from trivial being associated with just trivial fun and entertainment um, and the thing we do when we're the thing we are automatically doing when we're not working, when we're not working, we're playing, which is bullshit. Like, that's just bullshit. Right. Mm. Like, you know, sitting, sitting, ruminating with anxiety while you're not working is not play. That, that is not play, right? And, and lots of people's lives, their non-work time is not filled with play. And what it, and in fact, it's filled with anxiety and depression and entertainment that's trying to distract them from the anxiety and the depression. We have to be able to offer, oh my, this sounds so bloody grandiose. We have to be able to offer to people a rich 
descriptive, explanatory, theoretical framework that, uh, that always shows proper, proper reverence to the nonverbal aspects of the phenomena, right? And we have to offer people a rich normative justification for why they should engage in the practice. And those two have to mutually and strongly support each other. That's what I would say. At least that's my initial take. That's what I've been trying to do. Yeah. Uh, so you, you, you said something there as, as to why they should even consider play in, in its rich, diverse forms. And I just want to share a couple of thoughts that they probably connect um, in some, I know they connect in some form or fashion and I know all three of you will help here, but I was working with an athlete the other day and a lot of what I do, it seems at first glance, fairly trivial. I try to help people run fast straight ahead, but from the day one, when I start working with my athletes, I talk about this idea of, of, of mindful movement, of attitude before action, of belief. Uh, And I I would like to think that anyone who engages in in meditative practice would listen to my coaching sessions and and, and see that there is a lot of carryover in this physical form beyond just a, a seated position. And what's interesting is so much of the work is trying, it is that imaginal. Because all I have is flat ground in front of me. All I have is flat ground. All they have is flat ground. And you talk, Beth, about constraints. They run and they run and they run and they run. And nothing about that environment changes. So I have to change how they, or I have to invite them, offer them a way of seeing that environment differently. Very much so in the way that that kids will just play and create. And so I, I was working with one such athlete. And she is one of so many individuals I can think of over my almost 20 years now coaching, coaching movement. And you can see her physical unhappiness for, for, and that's, these are my words, not hers. Okay. I can just see a physical embodied discontent, not so much that she's not happy to be there as much as there is something blocking her being present in what we are doing. And so she seems ever so distant. And I was, I was talking to her about this analogy of almost like the tin man or being stuck in ice. And I tell, I I said, I need you to shatter. I need you to shatter through yourself. And I wasn't giving any kind of fancy coaching cue because that's actually, I don't think what she needed. And so I talked, I talked to her at the end and, uh, you know, I said, are you okay with me giving you positive feedback in front of others? Now, that's an odd question to ask. Most people would say, are, are you okay with me giving you negative feedback? But I asked you, are you happy with me giving you positive feedback in front of others? Because some people take issue personally with being called out of any variety in front of others, positive or negative. And so a conversation ensued and she just said, I can't get out of my own head. I can't get out of my own head. And John, I, I, so much of my own personal suffering, and I don't, I don't mean to belittle the word, I just mean in, in the way that it manifests in me, it manifests in all of us, it's when I can't get out of my own head. When there is a blockage between here where I stand and my awareness of it in reality, in contact, grasping it. 
And so what that started to remind me of is, is a lot of my work is bringing people like, and I don't say this to be, to be trivial or, or flippant, to truly get them in contact with the, 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 the place they stand. And so much of my work is doing that. And in an odd way, we use analogy to, to bring them back into reality, to, to invite them to be here, but to play as, as if. And, and the final thing I, I will say is this. I started cycling. Now, I know that if I was by you, Rafe, I would take up parkour and I would jump through those freaking trees. But if it wasn't you, I don't know if it would be the thing that I gravitate towards. But I'm cycling now and I do it through the, 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 the Dublin mountains. And it is transformational. Going some 45 kilometers an hour, there's no choice but to flow and be utterly present. One mistake and, and, and you're dead going down the hill. And when I, I, when I feel uncomfortable, when I get home, I just feel utterly present and it reverberates through the rest of the day. And as I've stacked this, it just stays with me, John, just like you referenced your practice and the transfer of it to the way you're thinking. And so for me, what I, what I want to offer, what I think we need to push, and, and I think, John, it needs to be grandiose. Otherwise, it won't reach the masses. There's a reason Tony Robbins is as famous as he is. It needs to be appropriately grandiose. And that is play allows you to come into contact with the world in the way that you want to, which is to say the way that feels good. And I think our responsibility is to help people do that and to try to broaden that definition. And you talk about relevance realization, John. And for me, that's what I feel is going on. I'm finally coming into contact with something real. And out of that, there's so much goodness, just in the way I experience the world, but in the actions I can take within it. So a little bit of a riff stream of consciousness, not overly concrete, but there it is. I, I, love, that. I love that. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I Go mean, ahead, well, two things. And then, and then, yeah, I want you guys to go because I know we're, we've only got a, a few minutes left to share our thoughts. Um, one is that kind of what I was trying to get into before this idea of the physical environment is forcing you into that flow state is, is you have, it is like, you know, a life or death situation and yet it's fun and yet it is transformative. And yet, and so that to me is fascinating. And I, I, yeah, I wish we had more time to dig into that. And then I think to your point, and you've talked about this before, Nick, you the idea of analogy equaling storytelling and again, getting into that play state, but it's not getting you into your head. It seems like you, you are able to take an analogy and make it a physical story that you're telling yourself. And I think that's a really important distinction um, compared to some of the things that John was saying of like, yeah, we can play video games. We can watch these stories, entertainment in our head, but it doesn't, it doesn't become embodied. So I've, I've really both important points. Um, please. Yeah, go ahead, Rafe. Um, I, I, I love what you said, Nick. And I think we do need a grandiose vision. Um, and I, I think that this idea that the people are stuck in their head, uh, that's a profound idea, right? I mean, we've talked about this idea that the body has been disconnected in a lot of ways for people. But I also think there's a way in which people are are stuck in aspects of the self. They're stuck inhabiting small aspects of the self and not being able to sink into their whole self. And so many of these conversations that we have are the ability to be present and be here, right? And this is, goes back to to Taoism and Zen and, and all of these things. But I, I was thinking recently that just like as I'm processing some of my struggle with the counterculture that I grew up in, 
I almost was thinking of like my, if I wrote a, if I wrote a memoir, it'd be something like seeking ground, right? Like wanting, wanting to have something that I could stand on that was solid. And it's like, we're trying to get back into the body and, and, and play is this extraordinarily powerful way to, to facilitate that. Um, so yeah, I just resonated a lot with that. And I, there was a bunch of the stuff that John said that, that I wanted to pick up on that, that was, um, that I think was a, a useful frame. So I, I wanted to just talk a little bit about play um, as we see, see it kind of ethologically and then anthropologically. One thing that we know about play is that, it, that, the, that how play is engaged with by an individual is dependent on the life cycle, right? In all animals, play is more something that we see in juvenile animals. So basically all mammals, juveniles play, um, lots of birds, some reptiles. Um, but in many, there's, there's not a lot of, of behavior that necessarily looks like play as adults. So we can say play is something that's predominantly seen in, 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 uh, in young animals. But we can also know that the more behaviorally flexible an animal is, the more social an animal is, the more it continues to engage in play as it ages into its lifespan. So you might say, well, then for a human being in particular, play might be very important because we are the most behaviorally flexible animal and the most social animal. So, so that tells us something as well. And I was thinking about the Hadza, right? The Hadza, the play of the child is almost perfectly aligned with the behavior of the adult. But that's not the case for us so much, right? What is intrinsically, and this, I think this, this disjunction starts with farming, right? Farmers have to discipline their children in order to engage in behavior that is productive. But hunter-foragers don't do that because we, I believe from an evolutionary psychology standpoint, we existed as hunter-foragers so long that the types of behavior that are associated with subsistence and hunter-forager lifestyle tend to be more intrinsically motivational. That's my hypothesis, right? And you can see that because those behaviors are still engaged in as forms of play by people who are farmers and by people who are modern, right? People who hunt to today in Western culture or fish today in Western culture tend, tend to do it as recreation, right? Tend to do it as play. So that behavior continues to be highly motivating, even though it's no longer uh, relevant. So, so I was thinking about this and I was thinking about this idea of exaption, right? As we, as we, so if you're a, a Hadza, um, this is less true now, but you can imagine that over time, the, the need for play in an animal's life decreases. If we are using the example or the, 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 the motivation for play of sort of mapping out the environment. Once you've mapped the environment, once you've acquired the skills that allow you to hunt, the necessity for play is less, all right? So a young animal plays a lot, a mature animal doesn't play as much. If the environment is going to stay stable and the skills that you need are going to stay stable, the necessity for play is lower. But you might think, but probably the reason, one of the reasons that you might uh, speculate that play is maintained even in those environments to some degree is because it creates behavioral flexibility when the environment does change and the environment always has the potential to change, 
But in a modern environment where it's changing faster all the time, you might actually speculate that play is particularly important to maintain the behavioral flexibility that we need to solve a life cycle that is constantly changing. But the problem is that the skills that we have to use to survive in modernity are very far removed from the physical, the types of play that are inherent, necessarily intrinsically motivational. Or, or well-regulated, right? That's the other thing. So you might say that like being on a screen and typing is something that is highly relevant in a modern economy. But being on social media and being on video games doesn't tend to self-regulate as well as rough and tumble play, right? You get tired when you do engage in rough and tumble play and you'll stop, right? Or your emotions, like you can see the, the way that kids uh, develop auto-regulation, but you can see that lots of people have problems with auto-regulation when it comes to their usage of social media or the usage of video games. So, so as we face the problem and we look at play as a potential solution, we have to recognize it as a, I think it, it aids us in recognizing it as a tool of behavioral flexibility, which is something of higher necessity now than maybe ever before. But the things that we're trying to apply it to are more distant from it. Our natural forms of play are more distant from their functional output. So this question that you asked of, does it transfer? Like that to me is the key question. How do we more effectively recognize how we cultivate character and skillfulness in a way that transfers from play. So that's the sort of chain of thoughts. And maybe I'll just, uh, maybe this connects, but you mentioned something earlier that was really, you, you just touched it, John, but it's something that's really interesting to me. Flow, it feels like has gotten a lot more press than play. And, and there's something strange to me about that, but it, but there's something about our culture that doesn't that it feels like it doesn't want to recognize the value of something that comes out of childhood. And I remember having a conversation with Jamie Wheel, who's been, you know, a huge kind of promoter of flow. And he used to work with uh, Frank Ferencich, who was one of the big promoters of play, right? His book, Exuberant Animals, one of the best defenses of play. And he said that when he left working with Frank, he chose flow because he couldn't sell the term play to corporate executives and um, and Navy SEALs. And I don't know, there, it, I just there's something that I wanted to note about that and ask like, well, how do we move that conversation forward? So that was quite a lot. I hope that was useful. Yeah. Anybody like to respond or say, I think that was great. I think the argument um, that you made, uh, Rafe, about it's like you know we're, we're we're suffering the paradox of our of our enhanced behavioral flexibility, right? The behavioral flexibility takes us into these increasingly symbolic domains in which the physical constraints of the the causal constraints of the physical environment are not properly, you know, the the set of constraints that we're facing. Um, Zach Stein makes this point about um, tracking realness is, is much easier when you're doing it in a physical environment than it is when you're trying to track it in a more abstract environment. 
and see, it's, I'm an academic, so I swim with people who are moving around, um, as Nick said, and they're, they're sort of trapped in their heads. But th th again, I mean, part of it is that we, we, our culture has developed as normativity, the Protestant work ethic, not the Protestant play ethic and the denigration of imagination. Uh, and, and that's part of it's at work. Uh, I get that. Um, we also, we're, we're a culture, we're a culture that is kind of insidiously addicted to addiction. Uh, we need large swaths of our population to get addicted to things in order to keep certain sectors of the economy running um, in powerful ways. The whole Frommian argument about modal confusion um, and what comes to mind overlapping with this is gambling, right? Um, and how gambling is a form of play that doesn't transfer. In fact, um, it tends to, although it, although it is triggering a lot of really important predictive processing machinery and the willingness to take risk and, you know, all of this stuff about trying to find a narrative when we can't initially find one. Gambling addiction is a clear example of, you know, reciprocal narrowing and it doesn't transfer. In fact, it has exactly the opposite effect. It starts to interfere with more and more aspects of a person's life. So I take that as an example of these forces coming together. We've got, you know, modal confusion. We've got, we've got, and this is a critique and I'm not, you know, I'm not some crypto Marxist, neither, right? But there is large swaths of our economy that run off of people getting addicted to things. Social media is an addiction machine and it's largely running that way. We, we have increasing evidence that many of these platforms are deleterious on a reliable basis to people's mental health. And yet we're promoting them and promoting them and expanding them and developing them. And so this is what I mean about part of the grandiose vision, you guys both encouraged me to keep going with that, um, is like there's a normative critique about not only the ignoring of play, but the, the perversion of play is what I, I'm trying to put my finger on. That we have, like we do a lot of the stuff that is taking the machinery we were talking about, and not only are we not structuring it so it affords transfer, I would argue we're often structuring it so it can't transfer precisely because it locks people in to forms of interaction with their environment that can be exploited uh, for the gain of others. Um, and so th that's my attempt to answer the question of why, how are we getting so far removed? I think, you know, like I said, we have a, a work ethic that, caused us to ignore play, but I think there's something, sorry, I don't mean to sound conspiratorial, I, I, <laughs> but I think, and there's no cabal, there's no cabal, okay? Uh, but what I mean is, I think there's a more pernicious perversion of play at work in our culture that's counteractive to the very thing we're talking about right now. Um, the, and, 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 and the religious fervor that I see taken up in other domains um, political and economic, um, I think is part of why we, we have a tough time getting people to reappreciate 
um, play. That's what I mean by we need a we need a comprehensive normative vision that allows us and affords us justifiable arguments that justifiably that justify arguments that justify saying we shouldn't be doing this because it's actually undermining the profundity of play and perverting it into a way that's counterproductive to human flourishing. Yeah. No. Sorry, sorry, Beth. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say my, yeah, I, 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 you said some kind of like, oh, it feels conspiratorial. No, I, my industry is definitely guilty of that. I just want to throw that out there. Like absolutely. And, we, and to the point that we've actually started to try and put the, the brakes on like, yeah, sort of gaming. I mean, literally like, how do we game this? How do we get like, trying to stop that because we have realized just how detrimental it can be. Take it away, Nick, go for it. No, I, I just, I, I wonder as I'm, I'm listening to us and notably John, as you talk about the framework underpinning, you know, play, is, is there a way that that framework can give rise to a word that fundamentally means what we are all pointing towards, but maybe with a different, coding, different selection of letters. I don't know if there is any salvaging the word, the word play, at least in li our, our lifetime. And, and I think we have to be careful not to salvage the word versus what we're hoping to achieve when we say it. And I, I'll just, I'll leave that kind of as a, as a, as a, as a floating comment. I think the last thing I'll say is this around, around movement and movement practice. Um, I, I just think we need to find in the most simplest of terms how can we help everybody develop or find a movement practice that they enjoy? Ultimately, we brush our teeth, which is something more of modernity. We didn't have cavities in, in the hunter-forger communities, as far as I can tell, uh, because we get fuzz on our teeth and it doesn't feel good. And that is a cue, that is a trigger to grab a toothbrush and brush them. And so how do we as a society trigger, cue in, uh, incentivize in a non-sinister way, people to want to seek out and engage with a movement practice. And, and certainly I think public planning and policy is part of that. But just a, a, a simple statistic, and that is the physical activity of adults in the United States has sat at a percentage for, for males, it's 23%, for females, 19% of people, these are adults, get 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity a week and one to two, call them strength training sessions. That hasn't changed in over six years from the recent statistics. And only 23% of males, 90% of females achieve that. And that, if you look into the actual data, is not nearly enough physical activity to achieve a lot of the flourishing we're talking about. And we're failing miserably. Uh, our children, 19 of the 50 states buy in to the CDC's recommended physical education curriculum, of which that's only 150 minutes a week of moderate to vigorous activity in school. And only 19 of the 50 states buy into that. And the, the, the actual numbers that our kids should be achieving, if we're going by them, is 60 minutes a day of moderate to vigorous activity. And to the degree that we cannot uniformly change what happens in the home, that takes a lot of time in conversations like this that inevitably get to a grandiose understanding and execution, schools and planning around that seem to be a very good place to start. But we have to move away from the shame, the blame game, as you rightly said, Rafe. We have to stop, stop strictly 
attaching all this to obesity, which is a problem, but ultimately cause of death is more related to fitness, which is physical activity than fatness. That's been clearly shown. And it all continues to point back to a movement practice beyond reps and sets and boxes that fulfill you. For me, it is that straightforward and we need to go to work on helping get the message and creating the space for it to be lived. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, I think from a society wide perspective, one of the first thing we need to do is to actually remove barriers. It's not so much a thing that we need to add. One of the biggest problems that we have is all of the ways in which we are conditioning children not to move. So we need to look at how our schools are set up in ways that punish children for movement, like all of the culture of no ball sports here, no parkour here, no skateboarding here. We need to, you know, advocate for public acceptance of the, the things that kids are already out there trying to do. Um, there's, there's so, I think there's so many barriers actually that are, that are in place that just need to be dismantled to allow kids to engage in play and find the inherently rewarding aspect of play so that they don't default to video games, to social media, to uh, some of these other tools that are out there. And, you know, one of the things that we face, and Nick, I don't know what your experience is with this, but you have young children as well. But, you know, I grew up in a community where there were other kids around who could just walk over to my house and play. And the social norms around children having the freedom to, to self-organize their own play have completely shifted in a direction where there is just no acceptance of that. So one of the people I want to have on this podcast soon is Lenore Skenazy. Um, America's worst mom. Uh, she's a founder of, uh, uh, grow. No, what is, do you know the name of her organization? Oh, uh, it's blank. Free range kids. Yeah. Yes. Free range kids. Right. So I think there's a lot of that to be done. And then also, I think that we can look at something like parkour, something like skateboarding, all of these, these subcultures that are already there and ask, how do we support them better in children? One thing that's been amazing, actually, where we live is that there is a parkour park here. It's the only one on the West Coast. Um, and uh, the kids who happen to be close enough to easily go there are regularly utilizing it and loving it. And it is, it's a huge thing. And so we take our kids up there and they see the same kids over and over again who have this place where they get to engage in self-organized, you know, low supervision play. Um, and that I think it is, is really powerful. So, um, so I think advocating for that is, is, is a really powerful thing as well. So those are a couple of my, my ideas. And adults. I just want to say too, like it's, it's when we go to the parkour park, like there are kids, they're, the kids know what to do. The grownups don't know what to do. <laughs> like they're like, Oh, I guess I'll do some chin ups. Or I'm like, no, bro. That is, no. <laughs> so we are, we're, we try to do these for uh, 90 minutes so that we can uh, take questions from the audience as well. So I believe we are, we're coming up on that 90 minutes. Is there any last thing that you want to, to get out of us uh, quickly, Beth? Um, no, I don't think so. This has been an, an amazing conversation. And I just want to thank all of you for taking the time today to coordinate and share your ideas. And I, I hope we get to have more conversations like this. This has been truly amazing and an honor. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for facilitating, Beth. Thank you so much, Nick and John. So for those of you guys who are watching on YouTube now, we're going we're gonna to end the, li the live stream here. Um, if you want to be able to ask questions, join us for our, um, our Podcast Plus membership, and you can join us on that. 
So Andrew, if you'd go ahead and uh, end the live stream, we will move to the Q&A portion. Hey, you reached the end of another Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question and answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below, get signed up, and join a part of our membership community. If you can't join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share, and subscribe, and even hit that bell and give notifications for upcoming Evolve Move Play podcasts. But audios for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.